you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your shows. Also, please come and join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. We begin today's show, as I am wont to do, with your emails and messages from the listeners. And we start today with a message from Peter, who writes about last week's episode. I'm surprised the episode wasn't called Tupperware. Peter, for the love of God, don't give these guys any ideas. Their puns are bad enough without your help. But, you know, you might just have a future here with this. I'll be honest. You should send these to Prometheus. They might have a uh, position open for you in their bad pun department, which I'm sure exists. Now, let's go to Emily on Facebook who writes, Hi, Dave. Thank you for the wonderful podcast. I love The Curse of Oak Island, and I love having the chance to hear such thoughtful and informed discussion of the show. Thank you very much for that. Many times you answer questions I have without my having asked them, so I am sure you are the perfect person to ask about this puzzling detail I've run across recently. I recently read The Oak Island Enigma, but don't worry. This question isn't about Bacon Shakespeare. That's a matter for another email, one that would take me a lot longer to write. Yes, you are correct about that. And we've also covered the, this um, book she's talking about. It's a small book, a little pamphlet called The Oak Island Enigma by uh, Thomas Leary is his name. Uh, but I was puzzled by a statement I read. I've always been fascinated yet skeptical about the 90-foot stone. When discussing the history of the stone, Thomas Leary states, quote, it was once built into the fireplace of Smith's house as an ornament. Many years later, it was removed and taken to Halifax, where it was kept in Creighton's bookstore as a curiosity. It was last heard of in 1928 when it served as a doorstop on the premises of a construction company in Halifax. I've watched the entire show, read all the books about Oak Island. I can get my hands on, and I've read quite a bit online about Oak Island, but I don't recall any other mention of this construction company. Do you know any more about where this part of the 90-foot stone saga came from, and why is it rarely discussed? Do you know what construction company Leary was referring to, or if anyone has investigated this possibility, or do you know of any credible reason to dismiss this part of the legend? Thanks again for all your hard work on the podcast, Emily. Emily, thank you so much for the uh, the kind words there. Um, this is all I know, okay? In 1935, a man named Harry Marshall... Of, I mean, you can recognize the name there if you're reading about these uh, the book companies and all that stuff. He sent a sworn statement to Frederick Blair that talks about how, when he was a boy, he recalls seeing the inscribed stone at the now famous book bindery, which was which his father was part owner of. In that letter, he gives a description of the dimensions and the markings he saw, and also says, "quote Thorough searches of the old premises in 1935 and the stone yards of Brookfield Construction Company on Smith and Mitchell Streets in Halifax." have failed to discover the stone, end quote. Now, I'm looking this, looking into this a little more as we speak here, so maybe I'll have something more for you on this kind of in the coming weeks. So if I don't hear any more from me, send me another email towards the end of the season. But I think Leary was just kind of mistaken slightly with this. He probably read that letter and thought maybe more of this Brookfield Construction Company than there really was. From what I know, they looked there. Now, this is back in the 1930s, but they looked there. Um, and they didn't really find anything there, but, and I guess they looked there perhaps because these stone yards would have been where something like this would have maybe been dumped after the business was closed and the building renovated or what have you. 
I'm not aware of anyone who claims to have seen it there other than Thomas Leary. I hope that makes sense. Again, let me see if I can find anything else on this. Um, might be wrong about this one. That's the best I can do on short notice. Unfortunately, from what I can find, Marshall's letter doesn't explain why they went to the Brookfield Construction Company. My thought is that maybe the people he was talking to might have already known what he was talking about. So sometimes when you read these letters, they're kind of coming in on a conversation that was already taking place. You don't exactly know what's going on here. Anyway, thank you for the new for the email. Thank you for the new project. Again, I, I, it's the best I can do on short notice. So hopefully I can get some more information as we go on. Let's go now to our friend Jock, who wrote me, pointing out that the Oak Island Lot 5 website is back up and running. Yes. Cheers, Jock. Um, hi, hi, Dave. I think you were talking about this website. Looks like there is some interesting backstory to the use of the causeway. Robert Young, owner of Lot 5, is not allowed. Keep up the good work, Jock. Um, thank you for this, sir. Uh, folks, check out oakislandlot5.com. It's a fascinating website with some very interesting photos and information. We've been talking about it a lot recently. Uh, Jock, with regards to the causeway, I believe what you are referring to is when Mr. Young writes this. And I'm just putting this out there because I think people find this kind of stuff fascinating. Fred was being denied road access to his properties by the other landowners. The island is connected to the mainland via a single-lane, non-vented, 600-foot causeway, which was constructed during Robert Dunfield's tenure in the 1960s to get his 70-ton dragline crane on and off the island. We talk a lot about Dunfield today. Although unambiguously stipulated to be a temporary structure... The flagrant defiance of common sense, it remains in place as was originally built and continues to perpetuate several degrees of consternation amongst its neighbors in Western Shore, including, it should be mentioned, the indigenous salmon of nearby Gold River. That said, the causeway is controlled by the Nova Scotia government, and, su and as such, Fred could have reached an agreement for its use. Of still further relevance, since part of Fred's properties contributed to the making of the island's center road, the court awarded him an easement permitting full use of that road. However, the private section of the road that connects the causeway to the center road was gated and declared off-limits to him by his fellow landowners. We all know who that was. An easement would have been granted had Fred's lots been technically landlocked, but since each had water frontage, it was denied. That succinctly answers the question how they are able to restrict access, but to address the folly of why one would need to press them to enunciate their rationale. These are the conditions under which I purchased Lot 5, and despite sincere effort on my part to remedy the situation are those by which I still abide. For the record, in my 24 years of land ownership at Oak Island, I have never once been permitted to drive to my property because of this quirk in the law that, by their sole discretion, my neighbors continue to enforce. Consequently, by my calculation since 1996, I have taken over 4,500 round trips by boat to the island, all by means of my beloved 16-and-a-half-foot Lund roundabout relic and her sidekick tender bubbles. Again, folks, I suggest you head over to oakislandlot5.com and read more of what Mr. Young has to say. And also see some of the fascinating photos he's posted there. This is a great little story about life on Oak Island, right? Uh, and this is written recently in the last couple of years. And keep in mind, he's not just talking about the days of the Nolan-Blankenship feud here. That's not the only reason why he can't access his lot via road. He's also talking about the current ownership group as well. Anyway, thanks again, Jock, for pointing that out. 
Let's turn now to Brian, who has a lot of questions. Uh, we'll take these one by one here. He writes, why not the French, who have been suggested because of the document that says they buried a treasure on an island after their fleet was destroyed in a storm? That is not pursued on the show. There is near nearby fortification built on a swamp that shows the skills of the builders. Been a while on that show. Why does it have to be the Knights Templar? Maybe the Templars stopped there, but the French were the ones who actually buried the treasure there, and maybe they came back and got it. Okay, again, let's let's stop this here. Um, for one thing, I do appreciate, Brian, how the Laginas don't seem to be focused on any one particular theory. And all this, I feel that we kind of share that, right? Um, this idea of keeping an open mind to the possibilities of all this and not getting entrenched into one theory. Because what happens then is people decide there's something that they think is the, the reason, the theory from all this, and then they have this tendency of tossing aside all the other things that they find and all the other artifacts and stuff that don't fit into their theory. They just sort of dismiss them. They dismiss all these stories and stuff. So that they don't get distracted from this one theory. I don't think the Laginas do that. And certainly I try not to as well. And, and I don't mean the producers of the show here. I mean the guys in the dig team itself. If you're paying attention, we certainly hear them talk about many different theories, right? Not just the Templars. Francis Bacon, pirates. And yes, even the French. I don't think you're giving them credit here. They spent a lot of time on that theory. Especially when they were discussing and visiting the fortress at Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island. But for reasons known only, I guess, to the executives of the History Channel, it is true that the producers are obsessed with the Knights Templar. Heck, the entire network is obsessed with the Knights Templar, let's be fair. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's much we can do about this, and certainly one or two members of the team also seem willing to um, assist in pushing the Templar theory. Anyway, he continues, Why isn't the guy who dug a 120-foot deep hole in the early 60s never discussed? Why didn't he find anything? Now, Brian, I assume you're talking about Robert Dunfield, and again, we're going we're gonna to talk about him a lot. Uh, honestly, he's discussed, discussed quite a bit on the show, um, but to answer your question, most people think that um, Dunfield was pretty far off with his calculations and likely missed the money pit entirely. Now, I'll be fair, and I'll be honest with you, I agree with you, they have never really taken a lot of time and discussed Dunfield. It's a lot of just background information, and you see stuff pop up now and again. So that's true for everyone. I mean, other than the rest dolls and the Blankenships, there really isn't anyone who's been given a real deep dive into their time here. And I think maybe Dunfields and a few others, for sure, Blair, Head, and a lot of them, um, we, they should think about doing that. And I'm surprised that this season has yet to include that kind of stuff, which is fascinating background information. Also, it's important to also say that uh, Dunfield, most people think that Dunfield was pretty far off with his calculations, likely missed the money pit entirely. He also didn't get very far down the hole, at least not far enough from what a lot of people say. The hole he was digging started to flood and became, um, yeah, and that really should have been predictable, let's be honest. And he, and he didn't seem to have any idea of what to do about that. Um, it became very inst unstable, so he filled it all back in. Now, I agree. Again, should be discussed more, especially when they're probing in an area where he dug. But hang on. <laughs> Going to talk about that a lot in just a few minutes, so stay tuned. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, at least a bit. I think that's kind of evolving. Brian continues, why couldn't the island just be a strategic location used over time with no documentation like the British Army artifacts found? This would explain all the activity there. Brian, I suggest you take the time and read a book called Oak Island Mystery Solved by Joy Steele and Gordon Fader. 
Uh, they can certainly expand on this idea much better than I can. And I think if you're going down that road that you're putting there, um, putting out there, uh, they're they're gonna they're gonna help you out <laughs> with with that possibility. Anyway, he continues. Why does the narrator repeat the same info with the same line over and over? Uh, disrespectful to the base viewers and supporters. And for the new viewers, the new viewers should catch up. I have watched every episode week to week for every season. Why should I be punished? Have to listen to the same stuff over and over and over again. The narrator talks to us like little kids, and what they tell him to say is beyond terrible. Repeating the same exploitive questions to try to get us to keep watching when the truth is way more interesting than their, than their construct and narrative. Um he also goes on to say that he thinks the narrator is the worst part of the show. I, I agree. Um, and I think a lot of people along this, you know, with this agree as well. And and our love for the show is despite the narration and despite the things that you say. But, Brian, welcome to the world of the Curse of Oak Island, right? Um, also, I think, to some degree, welcome to the world of quote-unquote reality television, right? Um, this is a very popular complaint among fans of the show. But to be fair... It's true of a lot of such shows. I mean, many shows that I watch, you know, especially reality shows, you see a big scene and then you take a two minute commercial break and you got to see the scene all over again. I mean, it's just the way this tends to be. I mean, if you're a fan of, of, um, I don't know, uh, take the deadliest catch. I mean, you hear about the same events over every single year. I mean, we've heard about the death of Phil Harris on that show for years and years now, and it keeps being brought up. Um, listen, you're not wrong. And all I can say is you're just going to have to get used to it. It's not going to change. It's um, The show decided many, many years ago that it would always cater to any potentially new viewers, and not just to those who follow closely week after week. Um, I'm able to get past it. I hope you can too. I'm sorry to say this, that it is what it is. Anyway, Brian continues. How were three normal guys able to dig the initial 70, the initial hole 70 feet down? Why would they even go 10 feet down because of something on a tree? Even 10 feet is hard to dig. Why didn't they write about their find and story? The initial story makes no sense, but I'm no expert on everything Oak Island. Okay, Brian, with all due respect, this is something that we have talked about quite a bit, um, and it makes some sense, this, the story of the discovery, but it certainly seems much of the story is apocryphal, or at least has been exaggerated over the years. But what I would suggest is you go back and listen to the podcast I did September 2019, very beginning of this series of shows called The Discovery of the Money Pit. I talk a lot about how the discovery has, and the story behind it, has indeed evolved over the years. I don't know why they didn't write it down. Um, they did in subsequent years. Why did they dig it? Because you have to remember at the time, um, pirate treasure was a cultural phenomenon. So people were digging pi for pirate treasure around 1800 all over the place, man. And for the next, you know, for this couple of decades before and after as well. It was just a thing. Uh, anyway, he continues. I am agnostic on it. I first read about it when I was 10. He's referring to the discovery. Crazy puzzle of contradictory info and evidence that leads somewhere. I love the journey and the show and your show. Just wish it could be better in my opinion. Sometimes I think Occam's razor might apply. And then they find so many things that make you think it could be true. Um, by Occam's razor, what he means is this idea that the simplest explanation is most often the correct one. 
this is a concept that I personally wish uh, more people would apply <laughs> to a whole host of what we call quote unquote mysteries, right? Uh, especially for people investigating, I don't know, things like uh, Bigfoot or ghosts or aliens, paranormal kind of stuff. Sometimes I think they could all use a bit more of Occam in their lives. Uh, with that all being said, start writing down the artifacts, Brian, that you find on Oak Island over the past two centuries and the dating information that goes with them. And you see how easy it can be to think there really isn't a simplest explanation, so to speak, for the Oak Island mystery. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to write that great email. Keep them coming. Here's an email from Steve who writes, Has anyone theorized the tunnel system was a way to control the water level in the swamp? Maybe to use the swamp as a dry dock. Thanks, Steve in Arizona. Steve, certainly um, yes to the idea of using the swamp as a dry dock or wharf area. But as far as I know, the tunnel system being used to control the water in the swamp, I would say no. No one I know of so far has theorized that, and as far as I'm concerned, personally, the existence of man-made flood tunnels or booby traps under the Oak, I under Oak Island is still very much a question that needs to be answered. Anyway, thanks for the email. Let's go now to Paul in Ventura, California, who writes, Hi, Dave. I'm a new listener to your podcast and think you're doing a great job. I appreciate that. Uh, he continues, I appreciate you taking the time to do this to answer questions from listeners related to the show. My questions are concerning the work in the swamp. Regarding the stone structure, has anyone, to your knowledge, looked for an expert in ancient building techniques to come in and evaluate what has been found? Okay, I'm going to stop um, Paul's email here and take them step by step because he's got a couple of questions. No, Paul, I don't think any such expert has been brought in so far to render an opinion on the building techniques here, um, as far as I know. Paul continues, why were wood chips used as a foundation for the stone structure? Was it was that a common way to support stone roads 300 plus years ago? Furthermore, due to the size of the stone structure, there would have to be an incredible amount of wood chopping going on to provide the chips, either a large group of laborers in a short period of time or a small group over a longer period of time. Okay, Paul, I think a lot of this, including the first part there about um, if anybody's coming to, to take a look at this, uh, I, I think I'm going to punt this a bit. I don't think I've seen enough yet. You know, I'm not sure chips is the right word for the wood that's underneath it. I've seen things that look appear to be much bigger than chips. I think, I think we might be seeing something of more substantial, you know, more substantial wood to the foundation. Uh, but I really think I need to wait until they uncover more. So what I would say is come back to me at the end of the season with this idea. And let's see what we can say about this then. The show tends to be very bad at visualizing these things for me. Uh, I don't know if everybody else feels the same way, but I do. We get a lot of pointing at close-ups and stuff, and I don't really get the big picture on a lot of these things. And then all of a sudden, a couple, of, a couple episodes later, boom, you got it, you know? So I'm just not ready to decide anything on this new road, in quotes, just yet. Anyway, the email continues. Why a stone road? Why not just use a beach? Only reason I can think of is because the cargo was extremely heavy, which would require a hard surface. But why not build a long road like the slipway in Smith's Cove? Easier to fell logs and lay them in the muck than to go all through all that work of chopping wood chips and then laying stones on top. Paul, I mean, all I can do here is speculate, right? And I'm never comfortable with speculating. But um, here it goes. Perhaps whoever this was needed to carry something, as you said, very, very heavy from the middle of the island out to a waiting boat. The only way to get that, or I should say ship, because that's going to come in again later, the only way to get that ship close enough to the island 
and avoid having to use a tender to get out to the ship, again, hold on, we're going to talk about that more in a bit, is to bring that ship right up to where the swamp now sits. That's maybe the closest way, right? Again, we know for certain the topography of the island, especially the swamp, has changed a lot over the years. So you just never know, right? I mean, how good are oxen or horses at walking along a log slipway? Can't imagine they're very good at that. So you see where I'm going, right? The possibilities are limitless, we hear, and I just don't know enough. Anyway, he continues. Again, any idea the team has looked for experts in ancient construction to try and answer these questions? Of course, like everyone else, I have more questions, but I'll leave those for another time. Thanks so much for making the podcast and look forward to future episodes. Sincerely, Paul. Paul, thank you so much for writing. The work they're doing now will hopefully provide the information that we both are going to need to answer these questions. So I, I think that you need to hang, keep this in your head and let's avoid any further speculation on my part for sure and wait until at least we have some solid information to go on here and discuss it you know, further on towards the end of the season. That's going to do it for your emails and questions. Don't forget, if you have anything you want me to answer here on the show, just email us, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it's time now to discuss Season 8, Episode 14 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Bend in the Road. The reviews for this episode were decidedly mixed in my house, I gotta tell you. I enjoyed it quite a bit, uh, but by right about 9.40 p.m. or so, I noticed my wife had decided to move on to other things. Uh, she started putting dishes away or something like that, I can't remember, but uh, she had definitely left my side on the couch and uh, no longer was interested in seeing the end of the episode. Anyway, let's start with Lot 25, the location of the former home of legendary Oak Island landowner Samuel Ball, and a project I'm so happy they're back to here. Laird Niven is heading up the archaeological dig, and it's obvious that Laird and his team are still kind of at the beginning, the early days, at least for this year of this project and the scene we're seeing here. Marty Lagina heads over to the check-in on Laird, and the narrator immediately begins down this annoying road of Samuel Ball could only have been wealthy because he found the treasure. Uh, but alas, Marty is the hero here, and despite the narrator's best efforts to push this narrative, um, Marty tries to correct the record a bit by saying to Laird, quote, he grew wealthy through hard work and doing the right thing and not being cowed by adversity. Oh, Marty, my hero, thank you so, so much for saying that. It doesn't get said enough, and a lot of conspiracy junk comes out about uh, Samuel Ball before admitting to the fact, um, you know, let's do it. I know what you're going to say. Uh, I, even Marty hinted that perhaps Ball had found some of his treasure uh, in this scene here. But take a close look at what he said, right? He said something like uh, perhaps some of his wealth came from discoveries on Oak Island. Some. Now, I may not have the quote completely right there, but that's the word he used. He said some. And some is very, very different from all. I'm willing to accept some. <laughs> But the idea that the only way this guy could have been successful is through dumb luck just drives me nuts. As I've said many times on this podcast, Samuel Ball was a remarkable guy who rose above challenges most of us could never even comprehend. I'm so glad Marty took the time to make sure the viewers know this. Now, even though the narrator's segment about Samuel Ball just annoyed the heck out of me, uh, he did mention something I think is worth noting here. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but it has been some time uh, since we've done so and really dug into this. And we're talking about the discovery of before in the in the um, 
email section. So it's a good idea to review this little part here. And I know a lot of people on social media pointed this out. Uh, the narrator mentions how Judge Mather B. Debrisay, in his history of Lunenburg County, which he wrote and published in 1870, contains one of the most referenced early accounts of the discovery of the money pit. And in that, he lists Samuel Ball alongside John Smith as the two men that Daniel McGinnis recruited to help him dig into the depression he found in the island. So the story is Daniel McGinnis goes out there, finds a depression, goes, oh my God, I got to dig this, goes back and finds McGinnis, or it finds John Smith and Anthony Vaughn. But instead, in Debrisay's first telling, he says Smith and Ball. Now, to add a little more intrigue to all this thing here, this whole story here, in the second edition of Debrisay's essay, which was published about five years later, the judge replaced Ball's name with Anthony Vaughn's name. Now, most likely, the judge just got this wrong and simply corrected the mistake for his second edition. I mean, we know McGinnis and Ball were both neighbors and close friends, so we could see how this mistake could have been made by the judge who's doing, you know, just a little bit research on this and not trying to make... The book is certainly not about Oak Island, right? It's just one little part of a much larger, um, you know, story of the entire county. But you can also see how the conspiracy theorists would have a field day with this one, right? Also, it doesn't help when the narrator leaves the correction out of the story when he talks about it on the show. It's very, very frustrating. Again, he mentions that Debrisay says that Ball was one of the discoverers, but he fails to mention that Debrisay then corrected that in his second edition and put Vaughn in instead of Ball. Anyway. Marty brings Gary Drayton down to detect on lot 25, and the two of them find what looks like a part of a nice old pocket knife. Uh, they And then they find what else, what they call a patent plate. Now, that, these are certainly interesting finds and worth looking into for sure. Uh, and yes, many old muskets and flintlock pistols had patent plates on them, but they were not the only things one would find a patent plate on. Although I'll admit this one looks like it could have been from, from a weapon. Uh, but once again, let me point out that I'm just a humble podcaster here. I'm not an expert on such things. Let's see if we get some follow-up on these items, right? Well, you know what I'm going to say, dear listeners, because if we don't, we all know why we didn't. Okay, the episode actually began over at the swamp, so let's head over there next. If you recall last week, Gary Drayton found what looked like a ring bolt. And we talked about it in the last episode, about the connection it potentially had to Fred Nolan's work on the island. So with that in mind, we actually picked this episode up almost exactly where we left off the last one, which is unusual. Uh, we see Rick Lagina, Craig Tester, and Doug Kroll, I think it was, accompanying uh, Fred Nolan's son Tom down to see this ring bolt. Now... The first thing I noticed, and I thought this last week too, but I didn't get too bogged down in, is that this ring bolt seemed awfully small, uh, and not for not one that one would use for a ship. Now we're gonna we'll talk a little bit more about this in just a second, but um, just keep that in mind. So they take this thing, this ring bolt. I think Tom was there with Charles and um, Charles Barkhouse and Doug Kroll up to see Carmen Leg, and the first thing that Carmen Leg says, he's a blacksmithing expert, if you don't know, is that. Um, it's very well made. He mentioned that kind of in passing. I think he said something like made by a very good or maybe a very experienced blacksmith. He was impressed with the item. He also says it was not made to go into a boulder on the beach, which is what most people are saying. But instead, 
into wood, likely on a wharf or a dock. And now it's starting to make sense to me when he's saying this, because now it's kind of, I'm connecting the dots. Look at this ring. What he calls, I think he calls it the eye of the object, the rounded out part. Think of how small, when you see it held in their hand, how small the line would have to be to go through this ring bolt and then tie up your boat. This was obviously not made for a ship. It was made instead for like a dinghy or a small rowboat or something like that. I mean, the eye here that they're talking about is smaller than the ones that I use at my dock at this lake by me where I keep my little 14-foot boat. In order to tie up a big, heavy ship, you need a big, bulky line. Uh, I mean, really, for a ship of any size, you need a big, bulky line. Now, Carmen Lake confirms this, saying that this would be for a small boat, like a tender that you would take back and forth from a ship moored further out in the harbor and in deeper water. So let me try to put this all together and explain why this is getting a little confusing to me. We mentioned before about what the Stone Road was likely built for. If we accept that it was built to allow the transport of something big and heavy between a ship and, let's say, the money pit or, the, or this pine tar kiln, right, then quite honestly, I would not expect to find a dinghy tied up at one end of this stone road. Instead, I would expect to find a big ship. I mean, think about it. If we had something so big um, and so heavy that we needed it to go, we needed to go through the effort to build a steady and well-constructed stone road, I can't imagine that we would be able to put whatever that was then onto a little 16-foot tender to take it out to a ship. Am I making sense here? I expect the evidence of a ship. I, I expect us to be able to find evidence of a ship being tied up, but not. But this is not evidence of that. This is evidence of a much smaller boat. Now, Leg also says this type of thing would have been made before 1760, and if that is indeed true, then we have something really fascinating here. I'm convinced this is a really cool find, and there's a lot more to learn about it, and I hope we can get some sort of scientific confirmation of legs dating. Anyway, let's continue with the swamp. Later, we see archaeologists Miriam Amaralt and Aaron Taylor doing a thorough search right about where this ring bolt was found. Interestingly, this is after we see the Carmen leg thing, and you'll see why that's interesting in a second. They find a piece of blue slate, which Taylor thinks has an unusually, I guess he was talking about the rounded edge to it. It seems that to me what he's suggesting is that this might have been uh, part of, half of the part where, you know, of the rock where the ring bolt might have been driven into. So I can only assume that Taylor is not aware of the information that we all just became aware of that Leg gave them, saying that this ring bolt was specifically... Um, made for use in wood and not for stone. He was also talking about the way it was splayed at the end, how it was obviously um, not used to put into a stone. I'll be honest, I'm not seeing anything too fascinating here with this piece of blue slate. Let's see uh, if they do any follow-up on it. Now, later on in the episode, Billy Gerhardt is digging along the uh, eastern side of the swamp, and he finds even more evidence of this stone road. Fascinating. Um Aaron Taylor and Steve Guptill come over and look around. They kind of agree. Taylor agrees because he thinks the makeup of what he's seeing, and again, it's hard to <laughs> see all this, uh, the makeup of what he's seeing sort of matches the other parts of it. And Guptill says that the elevation also matches other sections that are already uncovered. Now, the conclusion they're drawing now from seeing this is perhaps this stone, this stone road, I'm sorry, is turning east towards the money pit, which is a change from what was previously thought and talked about on the show. 
I got to say, it's hard for me to disagree or agree at this point. Um, As I said about many times before, it's hard for me to visualize what we're seeing here. Let's see if they can dig out more and give us, the viewers, uh, a better chance to decide what we're looking at. Okay, it's time now to finish up here with a discussion about the money pit. Now, I've been saying for weeks now that the show was just sort of keeping the money pit sort of in the back of our minds here, um, giving us little teasers and reminders of uh, what was inevitably a return to this area soon. And it seems we're now getting that, right? It certainly looks as though the money pit area is going to play a huge role in the remaining episodes of the season. So let's get started with this one here. The team continuing their work over at whole, I think it's CD 8.5. It's hard to keep these all straight. Where last week they found what they called stacked timbers at 24 feet. And they were convinced that they were on to something called the Tupper Shaft, which was the very first shaft dug as an attempt to bypass the booby trap flood tunnels by digging next to the money pit and then tunneling horizontally towards the treasure. We've discussed it before. I hate to repeat myself. I sound like the narrator. Uh, At the beginning of this episode, the team is now down to 58 feet or so, and they're still finding wood. Later on, we see them finding more wood again at 98 feet and then a big piece of an axe cut timber at 100, I think they said 103.5 feet. Um, After that depth, uh, it seems like the guys who are doing the drilling seem to think they're now beyond the shaft, in case you were wondering. According to the records, the Tupper shaft was dug down to a depth of approximately 109 feet. So this idea makes perfect sense to me. Charles Barkhouse points out that's uh, something here that I just wanted to clarify a bit. What he says is that they really need to try now to define the dimensions of the shaft as best they can. So here's what he means by that. Um, The old records tell us only basics of these shafts, meaning that they really only talk about depths and maybe the basic directions on which they might have tunneled, you know, something to the east 15 feet or, you know, that kind of thing. They don't say how wide the shaft was, whether it was sort of rounded or squared off, how they constructed the support beams and how many beams they put in, you know, those sorts of things. So why does that matter? So let's say you think this is the Tumper shaft and you're now going to follow the old records to the money pit, which we're going to discuss more in a bit, and drill a hole 10 feet to the southeast to hopefully find the money pit. But the Tumper shaft was 10 feet wide, right? And where you actually are starting from is the back wall of the shaft. So if you move 10 feet over, you would, in fact, be drilling 10 feet off the mark of the money pit, right? It makes sense. You kind of got to know where you are, um, and then you're really just poking holes in the ground in the general area because there's no way to know exactly. Uh, one would assume they mean 10 feet from the shaft, from the, the, the wall of the shaft closest to the money pit, but you just never know. I would hope the team might be able to date this timber that they found, Uh, at the bottom of this hole and really confirm that this is indeed the Tupper shaft. Because if it isn't, that makes the rest of what we're about to discuss here just really totally pointless speculation. (laughs) But hell, it's Oak Island. Where would we be without some fun, pointless speculation? That's the fun part after all, right? So the team then convenes in the war room later on to discuss what's next at the money pit. The conversation begins with Rick telling the team that Doug Kroll uncovered some files in Dan Plankenship's archives regarding the money pit, which was previously unknown to the team. Now, I don't 
think this is specifically said by Doug, but he shows us a diagram of the money pit, which he says dates to the 1890s, which I assume is the information he found in Dan's files. I'm not sure they ever really point that out, but this diagram says that the Tupper shaft is indeed east of the money pit, which is in direct conflict to every other historical account of the Truro Company's work that I have ever seen. The Truro Company are the people who built this Tupper shaft. Um, They wrote and all the accounts after about their work say that the Tupper shaft was sunk about 10 feet to the northeast, or sorry, to the northwest of the money pit. Now, I'm going to put photos of each of these diagrams that I'm going to discuss here on our Facebook page. So if you want to follow along, go over there and have a look. In the 1890s diagram, which I guess I'll mark as like diagram one, the Tupper shaft is marked on it as box as, as a box with an A in it. Now, the difficult thing here is for me is I don't know what I'm looking at. Who drew this diagram? You know, what is shaft G if you're looking at it? I can go on and on. I mean, there is just not enough information accompanying this diagram on here on the show. Um, I'm hoping that Doug has this kind of information, but be that as it may, let us continue with the discussion. So if this diagram is true, right, if all those historical records are indeed wrong, and listen, That's not out of the realm of possibility here, believe me. But if they are all wrong, then according to the guys here, this means everyone has been looking in the wrong part of the money pit area. In the second diagram Doug shows, the one on the Facebook page that says possible money pit location of Tupper Pit is actually Shaft 3. It says it in a block along the top. You can see uh, how the team up until this point... (laughs) thought the records were correct and were theorizing that the money pit would be found between this potential Tupper shaft they just found and the whole OC1, which is where they would pulled out wood last year dated to 1706 and 1756. Uh, Actually, I think it was two pieces, one dated at 1706 and one at 1756. Anyway, so you can see what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're following the 10 foot, which is in the direction of OC1, but not all the way to it. Now, Steve Guptill says something here that had social media in a tizzy. He said something that the team has, quote, put in close to 400 holes since I've been here, end quote. Now, if that's true, <laughs> then how long do you think it was before Craig and Marty started calculating exactly how much money they spent over the years digging holes in the wrong place? <laughs> anyway, I digress. Uh, Rick Lagina then says, quote, is it possible that for 200 years, people have not looked in the correct area for the money pit? (laughs) To which I literally shouted at the television, of course, (laughs) of course it's possible. I mean, you haven't found it so far. So of course people have been looking in the wrong place, unless there's nothing there to begin with, right? If they were looking in the correct place, then the show would be over by now. (laughs) But hold on just a second. This is when this whole segment gets very confusing. Is that really true? That people have been looking in the wrong place all along? Take a look at the final diagram on our Facebook page. I'll label it diagram number three. This is the one that places the money pit location 10 feet directly to the west of the Tupper shaft to to match up with Dan's record. Because according to the diagram, there are plenty of holes that have been dug to the west of the Tupper shaft, including a hole labeled C1. That's the Charles Barkhouse hole dug a few seasons back when they put a camera, a little camera down the shaft and found it was just a little borehole and they found some shiny metal object down there, but alas, couldn't figure out what it was. 
Could that object have actually been part of the treasure that they were looking at all along? Considering the collapse of the money pit, one would imagine you would find debris all over the place down there. So even if you didn't get the location exactly correct, it seems like, you know, more than likely that if that were the money pit, the money pit collapsed. If Charles was only off by a few feet, you might find something. You know, the question then is, uh, was Charles really that close to hitting the mark back then? (laughs) I mean, I guess we're going to find out. The entire team then concludes they're going to follow this new information and they're going to turn their attention to the west of the Tupper shaft. And I guess the only thing I can say at this point is, aren't we maybe getting a bit out over our skis here? I mean, without really conclusively confirming that they have indeed found the Tupper shaft, and for that matter, without conclusively confirming the authenticity and the accuracy of this newly uncovered diagram, isn't it a bit premature to abandon, you know, years of research and theorizing to start digging in a new area? Especially in such a time, you know, such a time crunch of a season that they have here. Let me also mention something else here. Something else these new diagrams tell us. There was another person who dug to the west of the Tupper Shaft, a man named Robert Dunfield. Now, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but let me just do a quick review here at the risk of repeating myself. So we all know what we're talking about. Robert Dunfield took over the Oak Island search in the mid-1960s, just after the, uh, the Restall tragedy. One of, the t- one of the first things he did was he brought in a couple of bulldozers to, to, over onto the island to essentially peel off the top 12 feet or so of soil and dirt in the entire area. By doing this, he found many sort of filled-in shafts, including one which he was certain was the original money pit. It is in this location where he later dug a 140-foot deep and 100-foot wide cone-shaped crater. Now, he only made it down to 140 feet at the center before the whole thing started collapsing and he had to stop. But in this project, he essentially destroyed all of the searcher shafts in that area. Now, there are two things that struck me here. First is that the new target that they're looking at is within the Dunfield crater. But it does seem too, doesn't seem to be close enough to the center of it um, for if this is the money pit for it to be missed by Dunfield. Do you understand what I mean? So it's further, far enough away. Dunfield did not build a squared off, 100 foot deep, 100 foot wide thing here. It was cone shaped. It was only as deep as 140 feet at the very center of it, much more shallow as you get wider and wider out. So, But let's just keep this in mind as we go forward with the project. It is important information, often not discussed on the show. We've said this already here. Um, where exactly will they be digging and how close to the center of Dunfield's crater are they at the time? And how does this all, you know, how does this all affect what we're looking at? Also, take a look at that diagram again. I am blown away by how it seems the team has gone out of their way to not dig at the center of Dunfield's crater. It's never mentioned, (laughs) but they've obviously tried to basically avoid the center of this crater as much as possible. Dunfield thinks he found the money pit. No one since has put down a borehole or two to see for sure. Now, I think he's done some, did some exploratory shafts afterwards to try to get down there, Um, but he thought he found it. He had reason to believe he had relocated the money pit. And it's obvious that the team has avoided really getting too close to Dunfield's work. Anyway, I'm not sure whether this new dig location is a good idea or not, but let me just take this moment to thank Doug Kroll 
and the producers for finally giving us something like this diagram that tells us exactly where all these holes are, how they all relate to each other, how they all relate to some big events in the past. I've literally been waiting years for this. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy our little uh, podcast here, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Helps get the word out on the show and brings us more listeners. Uh, Thanks to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate the kind words. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email. Island at gmail.com. little warning, keep in mind, if you send me an email or even a message on Facebook or Twitter, uh, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me. You can also follow the show, as I mentioned, on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Just put Diggin' Oak Island into the search bar. Give us a like or a follow there. That'd be much appreciated. It's a great way to follow along with the podcast and to interact with other listeners of the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.